Well, good morning, everyone. For all of you who have remained with us, I think the whole party seems to be going that way. I, w- I would uh, remind you one more time that um, we're going to be uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of our time today, so I recommend you grab uh, your elements from the back and uh, so we can be prepared for that time. If you would open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to be covering just the first eight verses this morning. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you together this morning to worship you, to hear from you, to learn of you. Father, this morning as we have your word open before us, we ask that you would minister to us by your Spirit that these words, these verses, this event and these events that happened thousands of years ago would not remain on the page, would not remain in history in antiquity in our minds, but that we would see what you have for us here. And so we ask that you would help us to be present this morning, be all here, and that you would minister to us in these next few minutes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know a lot about art, and uh, so some of you who do, you feel free to correct me later, but uh, impressionist art... Uh, is not something I have paid all that much attention to, but it tends to underemphasize the details. It tends to play down the details of facial expressions and things like that, uh, playing those things down uh, and focusing more on the overall impression, focusing on color and light in different ways, and I don't understand that, but you can't really see the details, but you get the impression of what's going on. You understand what's being communicated, though you can't see the eyeballs or the specific details. Well, that's how we're going to deal with today's passage. The uh, scholars, as I was reading through and preparing for today's message, kind of tended to agree on one thing, and it was basically one thing that they agreed on, and that is this is the single most difficult passage in all of the Pentateuch. To interpret. The single most difficult passage in all of the first five books of the Bible. And so I thought, well, great. If the smart guys can't figure it out, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> so I'm going to ta- try my hand at art, all right? We'll see how that goes. No, what we're going to do is look at our passage today, and, and uh, even though the details can be fuzzy, and even though scholars may argue about the details of this or that, who are the Nephilim, what's going on, and all of the, those specific kinds of details uh, can be um, discussed and argued from one way or the other way, yet the overall message of the passage is clear. And that's what we're going to focus on in our time today. 
First of all, we notice in the first four verses there that God's boundaries are crossed. That's clear. We don't have to reach too far for that, even if we can't understand precisely how they are crossed, yet we can see that God's boundaries are crossed. We look at verses 1 and 2. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. So, we have a, a detail right here, a, a point, a dangerous spot, if, if you will, because I could get bogged down in discussing these words, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of man, and we could lose all of our time by doing that. So, I'm telling you that so that you can keep me accountable, right? Who exactly are they? Well, it's not super clear. And anyone who tells you it's super clear is not paying attention or is not telling you the whole story, all right? There are three basic lines of interpretation for who these are. Uh, First of all, the sons of God means angels, right? And we see in Job three different times, very explicit references to angels and calling them sons of God. And so, if the sons of God are angels, then that would mean that these fallen angels were taking human wives, human women, as wives for themselves, right? And so, on this view, then the Nephilim of verse 4 would be the giant hybrid offspring of this union. Very strange, okay? Very, very unusual, but that's one interpretation that's been around for a long time. Another interpretation is that the sons of God might mean uh, something like judges or royal kind of rulers, despots, right? Kind of following in the line in, there in uh, the end of, towards the end of chapter 4, we read, about, uh, we read about Lamech, remember, and he was this great king, and he had these two wives and all these things that came from him. It's kind of the idea here in this interpretation is that we're kind of continuing that tradition, like Lamech's line has, um, has led into this, um, these powerful king-like figures. And, and uh, so here what you have going on in this passage is that these powerful kings were just gathering to themselves huge harems of women from uh, any that they wanted they took for themselves. And so that would be the second kind of reading. And that, that has a, a pretty substantial following as well. A third option is that the sons of God and the daughters of men might be a way of referencing the sons of Seth the daughters of Cain, or perhaps the other way around. But the point being, what's being discussed here is the godly line of Seth and the godless line of Cain, some way of referring to those. And in this situation, what's going on is intermarriage between those two groups, the godly group marrying in with the ungodly group for one reason or another. So those are the three basic interpretations, and all three of them are grammatically possible and all that kind of stuff. It's difficult to know, but for myself, I think what's going on here is, uh, is this is a reference to the line of Cain intermarrying with the line of Seth. I don't hold that firmly. I just think that's what's going on, and here's why I think that. Remember when we look back at chapter 4, we saw that chapter 4 was kind of a genealogy of Cain. First of all, we had the situation of Cain killing Abel, and then you followed through and saw the genealogy, the ungodly line of Cain, and what came from him. We looked at Lamech, and we looked at all the evil that was connected with that. So you've got, you've got a, a, a genealogy here of the ungodly line, and then chapter 5 turns and gives us a genealogy of the godly line, the line of Seth. And you have all these, uh, these great men who lived uh, enormous uh, uh, lives, uh, lengths of uh, lifespan, and uh, so we have them. So we have, we have both lines given, and then all of a sudden you start in chapter 6, and you say that when, when a man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters are born to them, etc., etc., you end up having God saying uh, words of judgment. I'm not going to bear with these evil people. I'm not going to keep on going, and they're not going to live forever. So what's going on here? Well, I think that our author is saying, remember when I talked about the line of the ungodly and the line of the godly? I think he's saying they intermarried. They intermarried for one reason or another. The, the, the Cainites were powerful and rich, and they were accomplishing all these great things, and maybe that was an enticement even for the godly. I don't know. But I think what's happening here is you've got these, the godly and the ungodly marrying together, and what happens when you do that? Does it promote godliness? Does godliness expand throughout the earth? You have the opposite happen. 
I used to do an illustration when I was working with the youth, and you've probably seen this done before, but uh, in talking about a, a, a Christian, you know, looking to, to date or marry a non-Christian, and I would have one person stand up on a chair and one person stand down below, and they would have tug-of-war and see which one could pull which, which direction, right? Well, it's always easier to pull the guy down, right? It doesn't even matter if you've got a big strong dude on the chair, the person on the ground has the leverage and can pull them down. Well, that's just an illustration of, of what goes on in this situation. When, when you have an intermarrying of, of this fashion, it doesn't promote godliness, and it doesn't expand the kingdom of God. You don't end up at the beginning of chapter 6 with, and godliness was great in the earth, and it was wonderful. No, you have the opposite happening where God is going to judge. But I hold that pretty loosely, <clears throat> though I do think uh, there's, there's reason to believe that. But regardless of which way you choose, it's an intermarriage that's not allowed. It's an intermarriage that's, that's not allowed. There's, uh, there's something going on here that should not be done. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Any they chose. And I think that's the key. Whatever specifically was going on, they were choosing in a way that was disobedient to God. So, uh, we see there were corrupt practices going on, and as a result, in verse 3, you see their days will be limited. Then the Lord said in verse 3, "'My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years.'" Okay, we have a few more uh, landmines here, places we could, we could stop and get bogged down in the weeds in this passage as well. Um, but he, what God is saying here is that man is flesh. He's He's corrupted in his nature, and he's fallen in his flesh. He's mortal. He's going to die. And it, it takes the effort of God, it takes the, the constant grace of God to, to keep this person who has sinned and deserves death, to keep them alive, takes his ongoing effort. And he says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, because he's flesh, he's fallen. He's tainted. He's corrupted in his nature and in his flesh, and so he's, he's going to die, and so he says his days shall be 120 years. Again, two ways to interpret that. One is that we noticed when we read through chapter 5 how long these men lived, hundreds and hundreds, nearly a thousand years, right? And that stood out to us because that's not normal nowadays, right? I mean, I, I know some people who are getting up in age, and I won't make eye contact, but they don't have numbers like these, okay? And so, uh, one, one interpretation of this is that uh, because of what's going to happen in God's judgment, yes, there's going to be the flood and all those sorts of things, but the lifespan is going to go from nearly a thousand years down to uh, about 120 maximum, which, by the way, is how long Moses lived, Moses who wrote this, right? So, I think that over, over time, you've got a degradation of lifespan so that it ends up balancing out at about 120, and it even after that goes a little bit uh, lower than that uh, when you read in the Psalms, you know, maybe 80 years, you know, uh, if he's strong is, is how long a person will live. So I think he's pointing to a decrease in the lifespan, but on the other hand, this is also about the time uh, given between when God speaks and when the flood is going to happen. So it's possible that God is here saying, I'm going to give you 120 years to repent, and then the flood is coming. Destruction's coming. Just like when, when Jonah was preaching in Nineveh, do you remember what he said? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, right? So he gave a time period, right? Repent. You've, you, the time is brief, but you need to repent. And perhaps that's what's going on here. There's a warning. The judgment's coming, but you've got 120 years to, to get right with God. Perhaps that's what he's saying. I, I don't know. Um, take that how you will. Uh, but I don't think it's crucial. I think that's a detail. I think that's, a, that's an eye color or something in this impressionist painting that's, that's not essential to the overall message. But nevertheless, we go to verse 4 and we see that these are indeed strange times, right? And this is, this is another place we could get into the weeds. Verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward... When the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Who are the Nephilim? We could just pause here and spend a couple of hours debating and discussing on this. Uh, we're not going to do that, and no one knows. 
exactly who the Nephilim are. Every, we've got ideas. And the word occurs again in, um, in Numbers 13 and verse 33, where, remember, the spies are returning from the land, and they're reporting on what they saw. And remember, these were the faithless spies. They didn't go there and think, yeah, we, you know, with God is on our side, we can take these people. We can take this land. It's going to be our home. No. They went and they, said, they came back and they said, we were scared the whole time we were there. Everybody's huge. The, 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 the cities are, have, have walls to the skies. There's no way we can do this. In verse 32 of Numbers 13, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. So you've got a reference later on about these Nephilim, right? Well, does that mean they were actually in the land later on? If indeed uh, the Nephilim were a people group, a race of people, a, uh, a, a hybrid mixture or something like that, how did they survive the flood to make it into Numbers 13? Well, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not clear that they did. It very well could be that the, the spies going into the land just got there and got scared and came back and told the biggest story they could. Right? Yeah, we saw the Nephilim there. They just remember the giants we heard about in the stories, and right, and 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 we felt like grasshoppers, and they thought we were grasshoppers too. And the land itself will eat you if you go there. We're not going there, right? Maybe they were just telling a story. Well, I don't know, but it seems like, at least in their lore and their minds, the Nephilim were giants, right? And we read about giants. That's that's not uncommon in the Bible. You've got someone who's you know, pushing 10 feet tall and, and whose bed is this long and all that. It's not uncommon. It's not unheard of for there to be people of very great height. And so uh, they would be considered giants. Well, is that what's going on? I, I, I don't know. I don't really know what the Nephilim are. So if you came here having read about it this morning thinking I would give you the answer, I have failed you, okay? <laughs> it won't be the last time, but I have failed you on that. I don't know really what they are, Okay. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, that same category we talked about before, and they bore them children. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, it's not super clear what the Nephilim were. It's not even super clear that the Nephilim were the offspring of this union between the sons of God and the daughters of man. It could just be giving a time period. Remember when the Nephilim were? Yeah, this other stuff was going on as well. I, I don't really know. It's not clear. And grammatically, it can be all kinds of things. Scholars debate about that, so I don't want to spend any more time on that. Uh, but there, there is a, a point of doctrine that we can draw from this that I, I want to draw to our attention at this point. The, the real evil that we can most clearly make out in what's going on here is at the end of verse 2. They took as their wives any they chose. What's that taking about? What's going on there? Well, the, the point of doctrine for us is that we don't get to determine for ourselves what we take. Whatever was going on, whatever the mixing was, whatever, however the choice was going on, he draws attention to it in this passage. For example, uh, if we think back to chapter 3 and verse 6, remember what Eve did? The serpent came and he made his argument and they went back and forth for a little bit and then the, the offer was made. Do you remember what happened? Chapter 3 and verse 6 says, The woman saw that the tree was good for food, etc., and she took and ate of its fruit. She saw it. She saw that it was good. And then she took and eight. We'll look at 6-2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. By the way, the Hebrew word there is good. If you look in your note, there's probably a little footnote in your Bible that tells you that word for attractive or beautiful or whatever is the word good. Same exact word as what the woman saw. They saw that the women were good or attractive, and they took. That's on purpose. 
That's on purpose. You see what they're doing there. The sons of God were doing the same thing as Adam and Eve, the, the same thing, by the way, that you and I do when we look at something and we determine for ourselves what is good, what is best for us, and then we take matters into our own hands. The author is drawing this to our attention to see that whatever's going on, the mystery surrounding the identity and all this specific stuff, yet we know we have those who were seeing, they were observing something good, and they were taking for themselves, which is just what Eve did and just what you and I do. But folks, we don't get to determine good and evil for ourselves. Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God what was good. And here we have the sons of God doing the same thing, taking anything they want. And so the application, I think, is clear. We need to learn to look at the world according to God's definitions of what is good and evil. Not determining for ourselves, not demanding that I get to decide what is good and what is evil. I get to determine the good and evil in this context that God actually does so. We grow very confused and warped when we think that we get to determine, to determine for ourselves what is right or true or valuable. God determines those things, and He tells us in His Word. And Eve forgot that. Adam forgot that. The sons of God forgot that. And you and I forget it often. We need not to do that. But we see in this first section that God's boundaries have been crossed. Well, that brings us to the second paragraph here, verses 5 and following. And we see God's response given. God's response here is given. And first of all, we see that men have corrupt hearts. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You would have to work hard to make that sentence stronger. There is a lot of force. The wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you think he means it? He, he didn't understate that one. Sometimes in the Bible it's understated, and this is not that time. Talking about the heart of man. Talking about the, the corruption within the heart of man. Well, you and I know, because we've read farther than, than chapter 6 and verse 5, we know that the flood is coming. And so perhaps this was something unique to those people before the flood. We know it was true of those people before the flood, but the question is, maybe the flood dealt with it. Maybe the flood uh, solved that problem. The problem is when we look at chapter 8 and verse 21, right after the flood, we read that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's like a summary statement of what we read in chapter 6. Man hasn't changed. The majority of the population, except for eight people, has been, has been destroyed in the flood, and yet the result, even afterwards is the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And of course, that's not just a Genesis idea. It's not just as, as if Moses was having a bad day and was grumpy when he was uh, writing the, the Pentateuch for us. We read the same thing throughout the Scripture. Now, this is from Psalm 14, and you'll recognize this because it gets quoted in Romans chapter 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This corruption that, that is born into the heart of man that we first see happening in Genesis chapter 3 doesn't just stop with our first parents. It's passed on to you and to me so that, so that we are likewise corrupted from the very core of who we are. And this is the, the nature of the depravity of man. And it's a consistent teaching in Scripture. It starts early. Our passage isn't saying that, that man is as evil as he could be. 
It uses very strong language, but it doesn't say that. Rather, that evil has pervaded every part of his being and is most clearly found in the seat called the heart. His corrupted heart, which then becomes the fountainhead for all of the wickedness that man thinks and man does. He's corrupted right down to the very root, the very core. And so everything that grows out of that has some taint of that corruption. There's no part of us lacking that taint. And so Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander grew from the heart. That's the consistent teaching of Scripture. The heart is a problem. The heart is corrupted. Now, you may have heard, and, and I've certainly heard in conversation with someone who names the name of Christ, and yet they live a life that, that is contrary to that claim. And, and when someone approaches them and confronts them perhaps about their sin, to ask, uh, why, do, why are you living like this? Or, or call them to repentance or uh, correcting their life. What, what will they often say? Don't, first of all, don't judge me, you know. But then secondly, God knows my heart. As if that's a comforting thing. God, God knows my heart, so leave me alone to, to walk in this little area of sin. God knows. He sees what's really going on in my heart. Yes, God knows our hearts. And He sees what's really there. And the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, God alone can know it. You and I don't recognize the truth of what is there in our hearts. And so, when the person says, don't judge me, God knows my heart, they, they think they're taking themselves out of the realm of responsibility because God sees what's really true in here. And yeah, I live, you know, have some sin in my life, but, but deep down, I'm, I'm solid gold. No, the sin that you live out here comes from the fact that you are not solid gold in here. There's corruption present. And that's what we're seeing here in chapter 6, that man has a corrupt heart. And then we see in verse 6 a divine response. And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. Do those words catch your attention? The Lord regretted. Well, we need to think about uh, a couple of things in trying to understand what this means that God has this regret. First of all, we notice that what, what sprang from our hearts, what was located in our hearts, causes a response from His heart as well. There's a, there's a connection there. But one thing we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about this passage, thinking about this concept of God regretting, is that first of all, God is unchanging. God is not growing and evolving. He is unchanging. So, for example, Hebrews 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. God is unchanging. Or in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that He should lie, or a son of man that He should change His mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? He doesn't change. And there it says he doesn't change his mind. So how are we to understand this? Well, we read a similar thing in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 29. This is just a very short sampling of a number of verses that talk about this same topic. The glory of Israel, talking about God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Okay, so what do we do with that? That verse says God does not have regret. And when I read in chapter 6 of Genesis, it said that God had regret. Do we have a problem in our Bible? Are there some mistakes? Is there some disagreement? Is there some corruption within the text? Maybe, maybe we shouldn't trust our Scripture? Well, no. What's going on here in our passage in Genesis chapter 6 is something called anthropomorphism, or technically anthropopathism. Anthropos, anthropos means man, and morphism means like shape or form, and, and, and you know, pathos means the feeling, right? So what's going on here is uh, God's heart and God's actions are being described in human terms that humans can relate to. God is being described in such a way that we can comprehend 
What's going on with him in this context? God is other. He is different than us. And we've just read verses that very clearly point out the fact that God does not have regret. I would say he does not have regret in the same way we do. When a, when a, a person regrets something, it's usually because he's done something wrong, right? If I, if I regret a conversation with someone or I cut someone off in traffic or I snap at someone, I, I regret that, right? Because I've done something wrong and I would like to have done better, right? Well, God doesn't do wrong things. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't snap in traffic. He doesn't do stuff like that to regret like I do. Ah, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that, right? I regret that. That's one kind of regret. God does not have that kind of regret, right? Well, there's another way. Sometimes when a person experiences regret, it's because he would have acted differently in a given situation had he known all of the facts or had he known how it would turn out. Right? Have you ever had a conversation with someone and, and, and you, you go into it and, and they say a thing and, and you're, you give some counsel? And, and you think, that's solid counsel. Well, what you didn't know is that behind the scenes, there was a whole lot more going on that you would have given entirely different counsel. Had you known that, and so since you gave this one particular kind of counsel and they took one uh, kind of action, it ended up in disaster, maybe, because you didn't know everything. And so you end up regretting what you said. You know, what I said was good and right, but man, I wish I had known the facts. wish I had known how it would turn out. Is God lacking any facts? Does God know how it's going to turn out? Yes. And so God does not have that kind of regret either because He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't lack information. He doesn't know. It's not that He, he, he doesn't know where things are going. That's our problem. Right? The reason we regret. And so this word regret is used in a very specific way. God, uh, God's regret is his response to the tragic sinfulness of man that calls for punishment and judgment. That's the main thing going on here is it's being described in terms that we would understand, but it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence because God doesn't do wrong that he might regret it, and he doesn't act out of ignorance that he might regret it. This is a description of the, 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 the wickedness, the evil that has come upon the earth, and now this is God's reaction to it. He, did he know it was coming? Of course he knew it was coming. He had full information. Did he do anything wrong at arriving in that spot? No, of course not. But this is his response to that, and it's given to us in terms that we can understand because I understand regret. You understand regret. And that's why it's given to us in those terms. And so we've got a divine response here. And we see, uh, thirdly, mankind has provoked a strong judgment. Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Their, their sinfulness has grown so bad, so grievous, that God will now have to do something drastic. The flood is coming. If you dwell upon the flood, and, and we're not there yet in our passage, but, but if you think about what that would have been like, that it wasn't just man who's destroyed, but everything is destroyed. All kinds of animals, the whole surface of the earth, plants, all kinds of things are destroyed as a result of this. So God is going to have to do something drastic. And had people been more obedient, He would have responded with blessing. But since they were so wicked, He's going to respond with judgment. It's drastic. What does it mean when He says He was sorry that He had made man? When I say I'm sorry, it's because, again, like regret, I did something wrong. And I wish I could make that right again. Well, God has never done anything wrong to need to make it right. Or perhaps I acted in ignorance. Well, God has never acted in ignorance. Perhaps, uh, you know, I didn't know how things were going to work out, and so, and so I'm sorry that I did this thing that resulted uh, unbeknownst to me in advance. What, what was going to happen? Well, God knows all things. And yet, 
this is a description of God's original creation and what He said back in, in uh, chapter 1 when God created mankind in chapter 1, He said it was very good. Having created all of the world and put it all together with all the places and all the pieces, and then he finally creates man, puts man there, and he says, now it's very good, right? Each step along the way was good. And then finally, when it's all together, you got mankind in his spot, ruling and reigning over all of this under God, he says, it's very good. But now, God has seen their sharp decline. What was very good has now turned into the wickedness of man being great on the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart only evil continually. There's been a drastic change. There's been where there was goodness, now there's evil. Where there was very goodness, now there's this terrible wickedness. So he's seen their sin, and he will destroy them. He will unmake them in a terrible flood. And so there's a point of application here for us. We need not to underestimate or downplay the cost of sin. Just a few chapters before, God was blessing man, and He was blessing the whole earth. He was declaring that it was all very good. And then chapter 3 happened, and sin entered the picture. Sin has ruined all of that goodness, spoiled it in, in, in in, in terrible ways, and rather than blessing, man deserves God's judgment. And whereas all of creation had been declared very good at the end of chapter 1, now the sinfulness of man's heart has brought judgment, not only upon himself, but on creation as well. So don't underestimate sin and its consequences. Don't underestimate your sin and its consequences. Your heart and your intentions and your actions likewise make you deserving of the judgment of God. Just like these people. And that's a, a terrible truth that we have to understand. We have to come to grips with that. We've got to continue to wrestle with it. Because if we don't, then we will miss the grace of verse 8. We need to know our condition. And in light of our condition, in light of those truths about us, in light of what we deserve, we read this in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is the word grace. It's the first time we've seen it in the Bible. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What is grace? What is, what is this favor that's being discussed? Well, it's the, it's the favor of God. It's the unmerited favor of God placed upon sinful people. Not because they deserve it. Not because they've earned it. They've done the right things. God places that favor upon them because of who He is. God gives this favor, this grace, and He gives that to Noah. Well, was Noah an exception? There are no exceptions. There are no exceptions to this corrupted heart. Noah's heart was corrupted as well. We'll see that after the flood, won't we? Suddenly it'll show up, and our hero of the story is no longer so heroic. That happens a lot in the Bible. Noah received God's favor, and he also did not deserve it. He hadn't earned God's favor. He wasn't good enough that God would smile at him. That same sin that corrupts the heart of man corrupted his heart as well. And we see a very great faithfulness and hard work and faith and commitment and, and all kinds of things from Noah. And we see his sin, just like we always do with any sinner. And so Noah receives this grace as well. And because of this grace, because of this favor that God places upon him, he and only he and his family will escape the judgment to come. The only, the only means of escaping that judgment is the grace of God. And God gives that grace to Noah. And so, 
before we go to the Lord's Supper, before we come to communion, think for a moment about your own guilt before God. The only way to rid yourself of that guilt, the only way to escape the coming judgment is by what Jesus Christ has done for you. You you must have the grace of God active in your life. You must have God's favor or that judgment that you deserve will be yours. And so this passage leads us to that place where we are uh, introduced to the idea of grace. We've seen hints of it, but not the word. We've seen, we, we, we see it most clearly here in Noah being delivered from this judgment that is to come. And so we come to the Lord's Supper now. We come to our time where we take communion together. And this communion is a celebration of the grace of God that has saved us, has redeemed us from the judgment that we deserve. And so as such, this Lord's Supper, this communion time is not for everyone. It's for those who have realized that they deserve judgment, that they have sin before God that's not entirely unlike the sins that led to the flood. Not to the same degree, perhaps, Maybe not the same exact things. Maybe you're not choosing, you know, uh, all, the, all the wives you want for yourself or, or whatever. But, but you've, got, you've got the same corruption in your heart. That means you deserve the same judgment. And there is one way of escape. And that way of escape is what Jesus Christ has done. That God sent His Son into this world. And he obeyed perfectly, always glorifying his Father, always obeying his Father. He was obedient perfectly and then gave himself to pay the penalty, to take upon himself, as it were, the the flood of God's wrath for all of those who would put their faith in him, for all of those who would enter the ark, as it were, for all of those who would look to Christ and only there find mercy and grace instead of the judgment of God. Only there find salvation. And so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we have these elements before us and and we think about God's grace, we are celebrating the fact that this is true for me. So if you don't know Christ, if if you have never trusted Jesus in this way, maybe you've got questions Maybe you're on the outside for some other reason and, and, you, and you, you keep this distant from you. Talk to me, please. Talk to anyone who is up on the stage today. We would love to answer questions for you. For you. We would love to direct you towards Christ. But this that we celebrate is for Christians. Not because we're better than anybody. We're not better than anybody. We just realized we weren't and we found refuge in Christ. The only hope for our deliverance. And Jesus meets that hope and He accomplishes that for us. So if you're a Christian, this is for you. If you're not a Christian, this is not yet for you until such time as you trust in Christ. But Christian, as we come to this time, we don't want to breeze through it. We want to think about the fact that we would have been right there with those people whose hearts were described in such a strong way in the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. That's us too. And we deserve that same judgment. And we can think back on this week and we can think back on our lives and we can recognize heart attitudes and desires that are just sinful. Things that we've said that have just slipped out or perhaps we meditated on them so we could get it just right and then we drove that point home, right? That that doesn't happen, does it? That's sin. Think about that. And as we think about that, this is your opportunity before we go to the elements. We're going to take a a moment and and, uh, spend some time in silent prayer. Confess those sins. Confess your need to God. And rejoice in the fact that in Jesus Christ, you receive forgiveness for those very sins so that you have God's favor. You have God's smile because of what Christ has done, not because of what we have done. We have an expression of joy, first a confession then an expression of joy that through faith in Jesus Christ, the grace of God is yours. 
And if you are in Christ, you have found favor with God like Noah and have that salvation like Noah. So we're going to spend a moment in, in silent prayer of confession and expression of that joy, and then we will move to our elements. So let's have a moment of silence. Our Father, we confess our sins to You. They are real. They are wicked. They are deserving of judgment. We lay them before You. We confess to You. And we ask for forgiveness in Christ. And we rejoice that by faith in Christ we have forgiveness of those sins. They have been washed away. He has Himself taken the judgment for them upon Himself and given us life instead. We rejoice that we get to take this, Your Supper, even now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First we come to the bread. Paul in 1 Corinthians points us to the fact that the bread is an indication, points us to the body of Christ that He gave for us, bearing in His own body the penalty for our sins. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Father, we thank You for the body of Christ given for us. There is no other way for us to have forgiveness, for us to have reconciliation to you than a pure and perfect and complete offering made in our behalf. And Jesus Christ has made that offering once and for all. And we thank you in his name. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we come to the cup. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 11, pointing to the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. The new covenant which is fulfilled on our behalf that Jesus himself took upon himself all requirements of that covenant, fulfilled it, giving himself in our place, obeying in our place so that his righteousness is given to us, reaching right into our hearts and giving us a new heart in place of a heart of stone, making us thereby right with God. We get to celebrate that when we take together the cup. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in the same way also, Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we thank you for the new covenant. The new covenant where the requirements of the law are fulfilled by Jesus on our behalf, and the, the reward, the, the, the credit, as it were, for having fulfilled the law and kept that law is credited to us so that it's put into our account that our sin is placed upon Jesus and punished in him so that we have forgiveness of our sins, coupled with the righteousness of Christ, so that before you, simply and purely by faith in Christ, we have righteousness, right standing with you, and we rejoice in that. Thank you for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
Paul concludes, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and there'll be a family uh, at the end of the service who comes forward. If you want to come up and pray with them, uh, they would love to pray with you and encourage you. And uh, children, if you've been filling out your blast zone after time is up, you can go over here and have that checked. But let's go to the Lord in prayer even now. Father, we are uh, thankful for the grace, the favor that you showed to Noah in the midst of his evil world and that you have shown to us in Christ in the midst of our evil world, that we get to have right standing with you, your full and complete smile upon us because of what Jesus has done, that he who obeyed perfectly did so in our place. And he who went to the cross did so so that we wouldn't have to, to pay the penalty for the the sins that we have committed receiving in Himself the judgment that we deserve, yet He took it upon Himself. And He gives us the spoils of that victory. The spoils that that point to the fact that you have accepted His offering. When you raised Him from the dead on the third day, you declared His offering was acceptable. And so we rejoice that we have your favor smiling upon us because of what Christ has done. We recognize our own guilt and we recognize that you have dealt with our guilt in Christ and we are free and we are alive and we are called your sons and daughters. And we thank you for that and we pray for your blessing even as we go out this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and from this day forward and forevermore. Amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.